0: Costs to originate keep rising, even with more technology in the industry. The problem is the core platform. A new LOS can re-architect the process around data, not humans moving paper files. Vesta has built this LOS, and you can learn more at Vesta.com. Welcome, everyone. My guest today is Managing Editor James Kleiman to talk about two hot topics in the news. Sandra Thompson's clarification on LLPAs after a lot of misinformation and the MBA's response to an appraisal bias lawsuit where they say the lender shouldn't be held responsible for an appraiser's actions. First, here's a word from our sponsor. This is Sarah Wheeler, Editor-in-Chief at HW Media, talking with Matt Dowd, Vice President of Product Management at ICE Mortgage Technology, about mortgage automation. Matt, where do you see the biggest opportunity to streamline the process? Well, I think we've already made significant strides in automating underwriting, but there's certainly room for improvement. I think that further advancements you're going to see will come in the areas of using artificial intelligence and more machine learning to improve the accuracy and the efficiency of underwriting. But underwriting is just part of the process. I think it's prudent for a lender to look at the holistic picture and the entire borrower journey from the point of thought through post-closing. So you know do you have an appropriate loan application that's easy to use look at your closing process look at your servicing compliance really look at every aspect of the business to the borrower journey because ultimately you want to provide an exceptional experience for that borrower that is so important and listeners you can find out more at icemortgagetechnology.com James welcome back to the podcast
1: good to be back
0: Good to have you back. So we are going to talk again about the LLPA, what would we call it, a brouhaha? I'm not sure, but there's just so much uh, going on there because we had a further development this week with Sandra Thompson actually coming out. So so lay a foundation for us here, and then let's talk about what she did.
1: So I believe the kids call it drums, not brouhaha. I, I don't think that is part of their vocabulary, uh, <laughs> but, but it certainly would be for anybody at the FHFA, which, you know, is not full of TikTokers, it is not full of... Uh, Gen, whatever they call themselves these days. So yeah. All right. So let's break it down. So Sandra Thompson, of course, the head of the FHFA, general, very measured person does not make a ton of public statements, doesn't go to a ton of events. Um, you know, really somebody who has, as a regulator has been seen as someone who works pretty well with the industry. Um, definitely happen to compromise when, when there are, uh, good reasons to do so and, and not, you know, not the type to kind of just come out with random statements. However, as as I believe you guys already talked about yesterday or or the day prior with Dave Stevens, there's been so much misinformation about these LLPA's, the level pricing adjustments, and uh, all, all kinds of TikTokers and people on Instagram saying, "Oh, here's what's happening now. You're not going to believe what they're doing at the Biden White House." if you have a 620 credit score, you're going to pay less in mortgage fees than somebody with an 800 credit score. And isn't this the worst thing that ever happened? And blah, blah, blah. It's not true, of course, right? So much of it is absolutely not true whatsoever. And here at House and Wire, we've taken <laughs> a few opportunities to try to correct that misinformation. Uh, but we, we don't have the the heft, uh, the impact of a Sandra Thompson. And so she sends out a release, on like late Tuesday and says, I want to correct the record on what's going on here. And she starts to list uh, a number of items in which she feels that there's just too much misinformation. And so uh, for example, uh, she mentions that uh, some of the fees are higher, some of them are lower, and these are going to be in differing amounts. Uh, But the higher credit score borrowers are not being charged more than lower credit score borrowers. They're going to pay less. The updated fees, uh, as was true with the prior fees, generally increase as credit scores decrease for any given level of down payment. Now, they do not represent pure decreases for high-risk borrowers or pure increases for low-risk borrowers. In most cases, many of these borrowers with high credit scores or large down payments are going to see. Their fees decrease or remain flat. There is a section, if if I'm sure most of our uh, listeners have seen the color coded LLPA, which which has I think it's like 81 cells. It is sometimes green, mm-hmm. sometimes yellow, sometimes orange, sometimes red. There is a section where. It's really between kind of the 7, really like the 680 through 740-ish bracket between LTVs of, you know, in the 70s to the 80s, where you're going to see some bigger fees. That That is acknowledged. Sandra Thompson, the FHFA, does acknowledge that they say it is not a subsidy. We'll get into a little bit more about that later on. Um, but there are a couple other major points that she makes here. Uh, The first is that the targeted eliminations of upfront fees for borrowers with lower incomes, not lower credit scores, primarily are supported by the higher fees on products such as second homes and cash-out refinances. Um, She also noted, of course, that the GSE statutory charters require them to support low and moderate income borrowers. There have been a lot of complaints over the years about the GSEs not having opened up the credit box wide enough to help people that are really lower income or first-time home buyers, that there are so many disadvantages for people uh, with those characteristics. And the FHFA has made it very clear to the GSEs through equitable housing finance plans, through all sorts of other LLPA changes that have already been put in place that you got to make this a priority. So Fannie and Freddie are making it something of a priority and, and this, is, this is how they, they work through uh, such issues. and I know there are quite a few folks in the mortgage industry who believe that that in and of itself really represents a politicization of the risk-based pricing that has been really the bedrock of of you know Fannie and Freddie guidelines for many years. Yeah. I think that was Dave Stevens,
0: uh, you know, problem with it. He, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't what, uh, 90% of what we're seeing on social is he's just like, you know, we should not be moving away from risk based pricing and, Anytime you, you know, anytime an FHA director does that, then you've just opened up that to change every, every couple of years if, you know, if, if the political winds change and, and that's not going to end well. So that was, that was his. So, so he has this one, you know, view, and then we have the whole other thing, which is just like, people have lost their minds because it's something they think they can understand, but it's actually a little bit complicated. As you said, with the grid and with the, you know, I mean, this isn't like super easy to explain on TikTok.
1: No, and, and look, like there are eighty-one cells in this grid. It's not like a lender can price in each individual, right? It's too complicated. It's not. It's not an efficient way of doing it. It's going to get baked into their rates. Most borrowers probably won't notice. Some will absolutely. If you are in a very specific sweet spot and you're going to be paying. Two three thousand dollars more in upfront fees on a bigger mortgage because you have, let's say, fifteen percent, and your credit score is six eighty five. Right? Maybe there there are going to be very specific cases in which you're going to notice that get baked into your your mortgage, but it's not like the vast majority of people are going to even know how to work this into their financial calculus. That, that doesn't mean it's not problematic for the industry, but for a consumer, the the only one that you could very plainly argue as very disruptive to the process of getting a mortgage is the DTI issue.
0: Yes. And that has been pushed back till um, no, no loans in 2023 are going to have to you know, deal with that. And then we'll see what happens in 2024,
1: right? Yes. Yeah. I don't get the impression that the FHFA is backing down. On on any of these LLPAs, and and look, as I mentioned earlier in the podcast, Sandra Thompson is someone who has historically worked with the industry. She's rolled back uh, fees in the past. She has uh, really solicited a lot of um, you know feedback from industry stakeholders like the MBA. And and make no mistake, the MBA has. I think spent a lot of political capital trying to to roll back, uh, especially the DTI fee. I, I think they could probably live with some of the LLPA issues. I don't think they're going to be thrilled about the the increases on cash out refis, but if you look at their constituency and you look at the market, there's not going to be a ton of ca- you know cash out refis this year, probably next year either. Probably not even the year after that, right? So, you can you can absolutely work on that. They're going to be happy that there are more first time home buyers who have an opportunity. Uh, and so, it's it's always a mixed bag whenever the federal government is going to roll out mortgage policy because it is going to affect different stakeholders unequally in in some ways. You know that the people who have a seven hundred credit score and a fifteen percent down payment are probably not going to be thrilled about this. There are other considerations here, right? So the risk being on the lender versus the mortgage insurance companies is is something that, you know, I, I think for a borrower, you don't really care all that much about, right? What matters is your payment on a monthly basis, but it's a consideration for the industry. I think they can work with pretty much all the LLPAs And we'll even be happy with some of the changes. But taken as a whole, when you add the DTI issue, and then you think about those who really did get a much better deal, or maybe less of a penalty is the better way of phrasing it, those are the people who probably, statistically speaking, have the lowest likelihood of being able to compete for a home in a low inventory environment with major pricing issues in a lot of markets, not in every market. Uh, prices are going down in, in quite a few metros across the country, but not enough of them. And they can move around the food on the plate, but they haven't fixed the fundamental problem, which is we have a major lack of supply. We are starving for supply. And we know that although the new home builders are starting to to get a little bit more in the pipeline. They're going to be stopping soon. It's they they don't respond to pure market dynamism. They respond to their own incentives and and that has to do with, you know, different goals than what the federal government or maybe what urbanists on Twitter are looking for. And and so I don't think that helping someone with a 660 credit score uh, who's a first-time home buyer, is going to be enough if you don't solve for the fact that they still can't buy the house. They still don't have enough money. And then you factor in the DTI issue and then it's it's a whole other kettle of fish.
0: It really is. Do I don't remember the FHFA director coming out in any sort of fashion like this before and being like, I mean, the fact that she felt like she needed to come out and say something to me was extraordinary. I mean, you know, they, they do things all the time. and I mean, there's no comment. there's a they, they you know, they just like release it, whatever. So it shows the level of, um, you know, how this had permeated the culture for her to feel like she had to come out and talk about misinformation.
1: We're going to see this time and time again going forward because we are in the the golden era of the age of misinformation <laughs> and then it's only going to get more gold. It's it's not going to stop. The, these sorts of issues started when the New York Post and that, like Newsweek or something like that put out articles that at best were misleading and then you see it on Fox News and some other right-wing publications that misconstrued at best some of the issues at stake here and then suddenly you have real estate agents with hundreds of thousands of follows who are telling people that, uh, you know, this, this whole thing is uh, part of the culture wars. And and that's going to be a problem, whether it's a Republican administration and policymakers in in housing or a Democrat. And that's because the algorithms really in in large part determine what we see, what we're exposed to. And so I, I just hope that we see more, education. It's good that Sandra Thompson came out and said it. I don't think it's a sign of weakness or anything like that. I, I think this is something we're going to have to see a lot more of uh, because it's too much and consumers are not going to buy a house if they think that, you know, maybe maybe I'm getting a raw deal on this when they're not. And there's a lot of flexibility in it too.
0: It reminds me of just, you know, the acceleration of, of media. And when you look at the bank run that happened on SVB, I mean it, in the past you know they they could uh you could get your hands around a bank run pretty quick. I mean that happened so fast because it happened over social and because you could pull your deposits out, you know, it's not like you have to go and stand in line or or even you could go and stand in line. Um and so I, I just feel like these are these are two sides of the same thing or or two parts of the same thing and you know you think about First Republic, I'm not sure if 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 that had it uh something to do with it, but
1: yeah, and, and if you look at the the constituency, you look at the people who pulled the deposits, and very largely tech, right? A lot of um, VC involvement there, and, and a lot of VCs telling their portfolio companies to pull the money out. It's it's definitely um, something you can also see on on social media. How many people believe in the same thing because the algorithm fed them this video, and it turns out, oh, it's not entirely true, right?
0: Oh, yes. Yeah. Well, I'm I really appreciate the work that the newsroom's done to be like, hey, this is this is what's true. This is what's not true. Because as the real estate agents that are out there talking to people, I mean, it makes a difference. They should know what they're talking about. And they have a huge influence here. Well let's let's uh change the topic a little bit. Another thing that's been in the news has been um you know appraisal bias is something that we've talked about a lot. Actually um, we hosted that appraisal bias and like looking for the future of uh you know envisioning and envisioning reimagining the future of appraisals um on Monday and we talked about a lot of things. And so you had a story um the MBA came out and said that lenders shouldn't be held responsible for appraisals Appraisers' actions, and this is part of this ongoing lawsuit that's going on, where you have the CFPB and the Department of Justice weigh in on the side of, um, you know, basically saying lenders are responsible for what an appraiser does when it comes to bias, and then the MBA saying no. So, can you can you walk us through that a little bit?
1: Yeah. So last Friday, the Mortgage Bankers Association filed an amicus brief in response to the CFPB and the DOJ's interest in determining what's called the liability standard that would apply to lenders in cases of alleged bias by third-party appraisers. And and so the mortgage trade group basically said, we are very concerned that the CFPB and the DOJ are going to hold lenders liable for the actions of an appraiser because that appraiser does not work for that lender. They're neither an employee of the lender, nor are they an agent of the lender. There is a firewall that was set up following the great financial crisis. And we, we can go back in in the history books and I think say that was probably a smart move, right? There were a lot of games played between appraisers and lenders and, and you, you can't have that kind of risk if, if, you know, both parties are incentivized to fudge the numbers. One of the challenges that came as a consequence of those laws that were passed is that the firewall means that appraisers often go through these, uh, you know, appraisal management companies and there are panels and it's designed to lower the cost for the consumer. But a lot of appraisers say it doesn't uh, provide uh, stable, solid, good, um, product for the consumer. And, and that, that's almost an aside here. But the fact is the appraiser does not work with the lender. There is very little communication, if any, in most cases between a lender and an appraiser. A lot of it ends up going through an AMC if one is used. And so and the DOJ and CFPB's interpretation of the relationship, they believe that a lender should be culpable if there is a case of bias, even though they have established the rules that have created a very limited at best relationship. So the NBA is arguing in, in this case, which, uh, is in Maryland. And it's a really interesting case because, uh, an appraiser, Shane Lanham in the Maryland, area and loan Depot the lender that originally uh, was was going to be issuing a, a refinance loan to a, a black couple in Baltimore are being sued and uh, the, the case is fairly complicated you know a lot of it really involves did Lanham make the right calculations when he discounted you know being on a busy street for example Or he used comps that were in a so-called black neighborhood, even though the homeowners say this is not at all a black neighborhood. This is, you know, a a very different area and the property value should be reflective um, of those homes And, and the comps should have been totally different. You know, so you really do get into the nitty gritty of what appraisers use in in terms of developing the valuation. Uh, The lender doesn't decide what the comps are. The lender doesn't have anything to do with what uh, some penalty might be for it being on a busy street or whatever. They have nothing to do with it. The lender could, in some cases, request another appraiser Right, and and we know in different government loan programs there is a process to appeal if you believe that there is a a lower appraiser that doesn't reflect the true value of the property. Um, but again, that's not something the lender has decided, um, and so it it just seems honestly kind of crazy to me that the DOJ and CFPB is trying to hold lenders accountable when. They just don't really have much to do with it. You know, they, they want, they want to make the loan. They want to make sure that the value is where it is. They, if anything, they would seem to have an incentive to, you know, want a higher appraisal. Right. Right. So So,
0: I, you know, I had, I have a lot of questions about this and I actually, I sent them to the CFPB when I was in, um, Gosh, it's it's been over a month now when I was in DC, I was trying to meet with them in person, but even okay, I'll just send over questions, get an email. And, you know, they they did not answer. But but here are some of my questions which remain. At at what point of the loan in the loan process is the lender liable for knowing an appraisal is discriminatory? Because the language of what the CFPB and the DOJ said is that a a lender is uh, liable for knowing when it was, um, when they should have known that it was, uh, a biased appraisal. And it's like, at, at what point in the process do they expect that to have happened? Is a lender required to vet an AMC or individual appraiser ahead of time before working with them? Um, is it only after a complaint is filed? I mean, like, at, and, and at what point, how are they going to vet these when to your point they're not allowed to, you know, I mean, there's an arm's length relationship here.
1: They can't interfere in that process. Um, it it's interesting because in this specific case that we're referencing, the homeowners who were seeking the refi, the cash out refi, did tell the LO at loan Depot, hey, this is a bad appraisal. This, this doesn't reflect the value. And the homeowners say that they were ignored by the LO. And that may be one of the reasons that loan Depot is uh, named as a party and, and is is fighting this lawsuit. But again, I, I don't know of any specific uh, best practice where Loan Depot could say, okay, thank you for letting us know that that you feel that there may be a case of uh, racial bias. We are going to what get another appraiser or do they have another appraiser review that appraiser's work? Or I, I don't know what the protocol might be uh, for conventional loans, but Certainly, it's a little bit different on the FHA and VA side where you do get an appeal. Um, but it's not like you get to choose the appraiser either, right? No.
0: And so like that that's one of the questions I had is like, at what point is it, what's the trigger point for that? So for instance, from a data perspective or whatever, like if an appraisal comes in under a percentage of the contract, like the contract was here and the appraisal came in like, you know, $100,000 low or something like that, which we've seen some of these appraisals come in. I mean, that's one of the things that, that, um, you know, spurred some of these investigations or, or, um, you know, lawsuits is going, you know, I mean, it's, it's seriously low. So is there something that a lender should be looking at, like have in their process? Like if the, if it comes in underneath this percentage point, that's when they should investigate. And, the fact and that might be a great thing to do, but it's not specified. And if you're a lender right now, you have no idea what it is that you could do that would um that would satisfy what they're asking for here, in my opinion. I I don't they did not give enough specifics and they haven't followed up with any
1: specifics. And in the Lanham case, Loan Depot at the the onset said, We think this is gonna be a five hundred and seventy-five thousand dollar, you know, or Maybe the LO said that, somebody at loan Depot communicated that to the homeowners, and then it ended up being $100,000 less than that. Is that the time in which you say, okay, now we have a defined protocol for, one, making sure that we're not potentially issuing a loan to a house that maybe we shouldn't be lending on because that's not the value, or are we looking for um, a, a case of bias or someone who just did a bad job? You, know, you don't have to be biased to, to do a bad job sometimes. So, Um, that said, the next, the house next door sold for basically the same price that the appraiser Lanham initially said it would be. Uh, and he says that the comps were absolutely, totally fair and they're looking for, uh, bias where there is none. And he did it by the book and I, I'm not an appraiser. I, I can't. Say, I know there's some art, but they they say it's a science and the comps that the appraiser who was hired by the lender that ultimately did do the loan, which was uh, through Rocket Mortgage, chose totally different comps. And it was something like seven months had elapsed from the time that the first appraiser had gone to the house and the second. I don't think a house is going to change $300,000 in value. Uh, but if you use totally different comps, yeah, you could you could do that tomorrow, right it, it's It's really a question of how you choose, and there's no science on choosing comps and this this is the thing.
0: so an appraisal might come in under the contract price for a variety of reasons, right? So I think that's the other question. If I'm a lender, does every low appraiser, appraisal come, you know, require them to determine if race was a factor? Do they need to have that as part of their thing? Or is an inquiry by the lender is only it's only triggered by a request for an appraisal rebuttal or some other event? Again, that's not clear. And then also once once that threshold, whatever it is, is met, what sort of inquiry by the lender meets the CFPB standard of determining, if it was discriminatory, because for instance, in, um, in this case, in the statement of interest, the CFPB rejects Loan Depot's claim that the Mortgage Reform Act tied its hand in dealing with the appraiser. So they, I mean, you know, Loan Depot says, listen, you set up this what law do you you can't do it. And the CFPB <laughs> rejects it and says that Loan Depot should have asked the appraiser to consider additional property information. So I guess would, my question is, would that one step have shown that Loan Depot was acting in accordance with the letter of the and spirit of, of this law? I mean, it's just very, very hard to know.
1: And this also speaks to the problem that so much of the industry has with the CFPB, which is they don't have a procedure or a protocol set up so that they can very easily rely on a standard or uh, steps to take. They're going after Loan Depot in this case, and then that's going to become the standard, right? Every You have to have an example before, you know, it's not a process of rulemaking, which is something the industry is very comfortable with because that is how, you know, HUD and the FHFA and and the other uh, housing agencies uh, generally operate, but it's very different with the CFPB, and that's a huge point of frustration
0: it's that regulation by enforcement so we're not going to tell you ahead of time but if you do it wrong then you're going to you know then we're going to slap a fine on you we're going to do whatever and and then everybody else is supposed to look at that and that's why I think this is really important i mean they they came in and made this uh, statement of interest very particularly on this case they wanted to send a message the problem is what is the message? Oh, I mean, we know. Okay, we it shouldn't do this. What What are the parameters around it? Otherwise, it's too vague, in my opinion, to really do anything but just cause lenders to go, okay, well, you know, what do I do with that? Especially in a time like this, where you have low volume, every loan is already costing a lot of money because of that. And so, are you going to implement some waterfall thing when you don't? You can't even tell if that's going to meet the standard here.
1: It sounds like the CFPB wants. The lender to get another appraiser to check their work, who bears that cost? Is that right. the lender? It's it's usually passed on to the borrower, right? Is it some other party? I I don't know. But the second appraiser who's going to look and, and look for additional properties to make sure that there isn't some sort of issue of bias, they're going to have to get paid. They have to go out. Is that another $400 that the borrower ends up if they find that The valuation was consistent with the first appraisers. Does the lender eat it?
0: Right. And in a time when we're trying to make sure that, I mean, you look at what they're doing with appraisals and um, the fact that there are now five options instead of like two or three and the fact that it's not the, then you go, okay, well, um, you're trying, you're doing that because you want to save the consumer the, the cost of this appraisal. So are you just going now? Now there has to be two appraisals. <laughs> like it just doesn't make sense. Like just be clear about what you want. Just be clear about what this about what this means. They have to do it. It doesn't make any sense to me. Otherwise, I know this is my soapbox, but it just it drives me crazy.
1: Frustrating for you, and I, I can't imagine how frustrating it is for the folks at Lone Depot who are trying to figure out what to do next, or you know the people at a, at the MBA who are trying to devise. Policy suggestions around it.
0: I can imagine. Well, James, what do we have coming up um, that people should be looking out for? I know you guys are always working on different features. What are some topics that uh, we're going to be reporting on soon?
1: It is earning season at last. Uh, you, you thought we were done. We're not, <laughs> uh, Mister Cooper. Earned. They they had positive originations in uh, in the first quarter, so that's a really encouraging sign. Uh, Mister Cooper, of course, is probably better known as a servicer than an originator. Uh, But the fact that they did pretty well in originations, uh, they turned a profit in the first quarter, generally suggests that maybe we're already past the bottom.
0: That would be amazing.
1: Uh, I've heard anecdotally from a couple of loan officers that just over the last week, they're starting to see the iceberg melting a little bit and and they're starting to to get a few more deals in the pipeline and, and things are improving. No one's going to say this is like it was a couple years ago, but better even if it's not great. Uh, So we're going to be doing some reporting on that. We have a really, really fun story up right now about how LOs in a relatively chilly spring home buying season are figuring out how to pivot a little bit, you know? And so instead of just hoping that you're Tried and trusted real estate agent partners are going to find deals that you can work on. Maybe it's getting on a new builder's preferred lender list. Maybe it's looking at niche products, even if it's only, you know, 10% of your business. It's 10% you didn't have before. And that could be the difference between having, you know, uh, there's a huge difference between having three loans a month and two loans a month. And that's, that's important. And then just, you know, different ways of uh, finding leads, lead generation remains uh, one of the most challenging parts of the originations business—the cost of these leads—is still absolutely bonkers. Uh, and we're we're definitely looking a lot more into how some lenders are able to get these leads for much cheaper, because that speaks a lot to the margin rate compression issue too. So we're looking into that. Open door anywhere Zillow uh offerpad all have their earnings calls this week and next week all the title insurance companies are, are out today and tomorrow and next week so it's um it's a pretty busy season for us and uh, and we're excited about that and we're also taking a look at the single family rental market uh, some headwinds there of course uh, but still generally speaking a pretty strong asset class so We've got some nuance uh, to look at. And and then, uh, you know, just whatever news happens related to the LLPAs, if Sandra Thompson does decide to change her mind, if she does decide to roll back the DTI fee, much to the, the celebration of LOs and MBA uh, dinner parties everywhere, uh, I'll be on it. But um, short of that, we'll, we'll just be sticking to the regular news.
0: I appreciate it so much. You guys are doing a great job. And thanks for being on.
1: Thanks, Sarah.
2: We have a Slack channel at HW that publishes all of the new registered users for our HW events, like the Gathering of Eagles coming up in June and Housing Wire Annual coming up in October. I was just scrolling through the Gathering of Eagles feed on Slack and wow, I am blown away with the quality of the attendees. Leaders from Keller Williams, Better Homes and Gardens, EXP, Compass, Hannah Holdings, Remax and Home Services an incredible ecosystem partners like Zillow, Austin Board of Realtors, New Western Acquisitions, UWM and Bright MLS, just to name a few. If you aren't familiar with GOE, this is our real estate brokerage event for the most elite brokers, teams, MLS execs, and state and local association of realtors leaders. June 18th through 21st in Austin, Texas at the amazing Omni Barton Creek Resort. Visit the events tab on realtrends.com or housingwire.com to register.
0: Thanks for listening to Housing Wire Daily. If you haven't already, we'd love for you to take a minute to rate the show or leave a comment. We'll see you back here on Monday for more news and insight.